Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome to Right on Hollywood with Christian Toto, part of the Just the News Podcast Network. Sick of media bias infecting film reviews? Furious that too many stars insult your views? Right on Hollywood has your back. Christian is an award-winning journalist, movie critic, and founder of HollywoodInToto.com, the right take on entertainment. Now here's your host, Christian Toto. Welcome to Right on Hollywood, a proud member of the Just the News Podcast Network. This week's show is brought to you by the tiny patch of skin on Pete Davidson that hasn't been covered with a tattoo yet. Rita Moreno is in the news lately, and she is a legend, no doubt. Her career covers everything from West Side Story, Singing in the Rain, and, of course, The Electric Company. <laughs> That's where I first noticed her. First impressions matter, and I've admired her ever since, and I think I'm not alone. But that legendary status didn't protect her from the woke mob last year. Moreno attempted to defend her fellow artist, Lin-Manuel Miranda, after the In the Heights creator came under significant mob attack. Why? Well, he didn't cast enough dark-skinned Latino actors in his musical In the Heights. Here's an artist who has done so much for the diversity in the arts, from the smash hit Hamilton to films like Encanto and Vivo, and it wasn't enough. Miranda, of course, apologized rather than defend his artistic choices. That's what happens. You're never woke enough, of course. Someone should write a book about that. Now, Moreno blasted his critics on, of all places, The Late Show with Biden puppet Stephen Colbert. She said, you can never do right, it seems, and she was right. And she didn't stop there. Here's more of what she said. This is the man who literally has brought Latinoness and Puerto Ricanness to America. I couldn't do it. I would love to say I did, but I couldn't. Lynn Manuel has done that really single handedly, and I'm thrilled. And of course, she immediately backpedaled. It said, maybe it was Warp Factor 8. I don't know. It was pretty darn fast. Here's what she said after that comment I'm incredibly disappointed with myself. While making a statement in defense of Lin-Manuel Miranda on The Colbert Show last night, I was clearly dismissive of black lives that matter in our Latin community. It's so easy to forget how celebration for some is lament for others. Now, having undergone that re-education, the legendary Rita Moreno is striking another particularly sour note. Here she is at the PGA Awards, accepting a major honor and all but demanding the upcoming Oscars go for woke broke. Here's what she had to say. Some in our tribe have been known to use the spotlight to advocate for issues addressed in their nominated works. 
climate change, universal health care, voting rights, LGBTQ advocacy, and others. And I know that for some in the audience, in some audiences, have been known to create, how should I say, a mild discomfort? For others, heart palpitations. After all, who are these actors, these Hollywood types think who they are? Citizens in a democracy? Well, F them. Freedom of speech belongs to all of us actors. Sorry, Miss Living Legend, Hollywood doesn't give a damn about free speech. And on some level, I think you know it. Ask the conservative actors, who keep their opinions to themselves for fear of career reprisals, or worse. Ask the comedians who worried about the next joke they tell being their last joke. Ask the actors who quickly quit roles because the woke mob demands it. Ask the creators who find their work silenced by big tech giants over and again, while the Marinos of the world stay silent. Now, I have to think that Moreno's speech wasn't something she'd give decades ago, maybe not even 10 years ago, possibly not even two years ago. She even name-checks equity in that speech. It's the far left's current buzzword. The woke mob got her. Now she's acting accordingly. That's how things happen in Hollywood. Even icons aren't immune to cancel culture, and that's truly sad. You're listening to my dad's podcast. He cried like a baby watching Snoopy come home. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This week's Toto's take is fresh. Now, again, I'm breaking my don't review new movies in the slot role because this one really rocked me. And it's a feminist horror movie. It's good, really good. Daisy Edgar-Jones stars as Noah, a single gal who's sick of the single scene. You can't blame her. There's a great scene in early on where she's on this incredibly awful, toxic date. And if you can't relate, then you've never been single asking people out. It is awful, and it really does set the scene. But one day she meets someone who's cute, interesting, smart, sense of humor. He's Steve, and that's played, he's played by Sebastian Stan of Winter Soldier fame. Steve is all the things that women dream about on paper, but, of course, that's on paper. So she goes on an extensive trip with him, and she quickly realizes there's more to Steve than that really handsome mug. He's a cannibal, and he's hungry for human flesh. And Noah looks delicious. Now, there's a clear feminist agenda at work here, absolutely, about the power differential between men and women, the patriarchy, the folly of dating in the modern world. Check. Check, 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 check. But it never gets in the way of the story. It actually makes it richer. This is a really slick production, too. It's good-looking. There's a really gorgeous production design. This is an indie film, clearly, but it doesn't look like an indie film. And also, the pickle our heroine finds herself in is just excruciating. You can really feel her pain, her fear. It's really impressive. Now, the leads here are good. They're believable. And there's plenty of dark humor. I love that in a horror movie. When there's a laugh, when there's sort of that tension-breaking moment, even when it feels kind of gritty and odd, makes everything better. The director here is Mimi Cave. I don't really think I've heard of her before. And this is her first film, Well Done. And uh, she's the kind of director who's really keeping the tension up close, front and center. And I'd say maybe a couple of lines kind of cross into that woke boundary. But you know what? The movie earns them. In fact, the finale is so terrific, I wouldn't have minded a couple more lines like that. Amazing. 
Uh, this one really worked me over. It's uh, a big surprise, I'd have to say, and a real treat for horror fans. You don't get many really good movies you want to tell people about. This one qualifies. Now, Fresh is a Hulu original, so you know exactly where you can find it. A friend recently asked me to appear on his podcast. He wanted me to discuss movie criticism, and specifically, if you've never reviewed a film before, what do you do? How do you start? What are the rules? Now, it might sound complicated, but I said to him it shouldn't be. You know, trust your gut first and foremost, and then you can kind of work on some details after that. But the conversation got me thinking about what other critics have to say about that very question, and I thought about Barry Wurst. Now, he contributes to my site, HollywoodandToto.com. Plug, plug. And he also reviews films for ScreenGeeks.com, The Maui Daily, and his own podcast, So I Married a Film Critic. He's also a film professor, if that's not enough for you, he has a warm spot for great movies, Terrence Malick films, and even Grindhouse stuff. That's cool range. So I asked Barry the question that my friend asked me recently. And I also found out the very, very cool way he got into the film critic business in the first place. I've known him for a while. I had no idea. It's a great story. Now, Barry's a smart guy, an amazing critic, and someone who knows a compelling story when he lives one out. I think you'll agree. Check it out. Barry, thanks for joining the show. I love your work, and I love the chance to chat with you about movies, of course. But I recently interviewed another film critic for the show. I was, of course, was thinking about you the whole time. And uh, Mike McGranahan had a great story about how he became a critic. And I, I think everyone gets into the business in a different way. I, I had a very belabored uh, entry into the, into the film criticism business. But how did you get there? Can you have a quick origin story you can share? The origin story is elaborate, so I'll try to be as brief about it as possible. Okay. My father took me to see Alan Quartermain in The Lost City of Gold at the theater in February of 87. He took me to the movies, and I absolutely loved it. And the car ride home, I was just boring him with movie critic adjectives because I was a nerdy <laughs> kid in the, in, the, in the 1980s. I was one of those kids and watched Siskel and Ebert and read Mike Clark and USA Today all the time. Loved movies, loved film criticism. So I remember on the ride home, I'm going, Dad, that movie was amazing. It was so exciting and thrilling. And it was even better than King Solomon's Minds. It's just like inundating my father. And my my dad, either to shut me up or to genuinely encourage me, said, you know, Bear, when you get home, why don't you just write a review about it? So I did. Uh-huh. And that was when I was nine years old. And I've been doing it ever since. And it was a practice, honestly. It was just, it became a habit where I would just watch a movie and I would start reviewing a film. So that's how that started. The real reason I became a film critic, there's a few people in my life who are kind of the gatekeepers, but I guess there's two I should mention. There was a girl I went to middle school with named Star, who was a spectacular writer, and we were in middle school together, and because her last name was Tendo, she was before me, mm-hmm. and she would get up and read her original stories to the class, and she always slayed. She always killed it, so I, I remember being at home like, man, I got I to gotta really step up because Star is going to kill, and I'm alphabetically the last one on the list, though, so I always come after her, so I got to really step it up. So Star was someone who really inspired me, and she wrote in my yearbook, Barry, one day you're going to be a great writer. And I remember thinking, wow, this beautiful, inspiring girl told me I'm going to be a great writer. So back to Star in a moment. When I was in college, I was writing for my paper, uh, my, my college paper, and I was about to graduate, and I'd been writing for my paper for a couple of years, and I loved it, and I loved the, you know, I just loved the process of, of 
writing and submitting and, and getting the instant feedback from people on campus. I was about to graduate. I had no idea how I wanted to become the one thing I wanted in life, which was to be a professional film critic. So I called Robert Dennerstein, who at the time was a film critic for the Denver, uh, excuse me, the Rocky Mountain News. He had been doing that for 27 years. And um, I sent him an email. He invited me to call him. So I asked him, I said, you know, Mr. Dennerstein, I, I love your reviews. I, even when I disagree with you, I love them. How do you become a film critic? Like, what is it? You know, and I'm waiting for a Robert Dennerstein to basically tell me like what the secret word is so I can, you know, enter that club. And he proceeds for about 10 minutes to break my heart and tell me that uh, there's no real way in, that he became a film critic by accident, that film criticism is something that everybody thinks they're good at, but most people aren't. Just, just really giving me 10 minutes of like, it ain't happening. And I think he kind of sensed that I was about to hang up the phone and start crying. So what he said was, Barry, no matter what you do, whether they pay you or not, never stop writing because excellence takes time. So mm. promise me, whether they pay you for these reviews or whether you do them for fun, you never stop writing because this way, when you have an opportunity like the one that I have, you'll be ready for it. So never stop writing. So I said, oh, okay, whatever. Well, not long after that, maybe, well, a couple of years passed by and Star, my friend from middle school, she's back. calls me up out of nowhere, out of nowhere. And she's the editor in chief at Maui Time Weekly. Maui is the home I grew up on. And she called me and said, Barry, we need a movie critic. I read this article that you wrote by Googling your name and there it was. And we need a film critic as, as chance would have it. Would you be interested? I'm like, oh my God, this is like the phone call I've been waiting for. So I credit Robert Dennerstein for telling me to never stop writing because that was extremely helpful advice. And my dear friend, Star Tendo, who's still my friend to this day, who opened the door for me. And uh, you know, her inspiring me as a writer, as a 13-year-old, as a paid off when I was 30. I was 30 when I became a professional film critic. I love that story. It's amazing. I have a quick addition to it. And this is, sounds a little bit far afield, but I, I, I don't think it is. I listened to Joe Rogan recently. I had an interview with Mr. Beast, who I didn't know who the heck was what's a Mr. Beast. He's a YouTube sensation. My kids turned me on to him. And he talked about how he's been making videos since he's, I think he was 11 years old when he first started. And he just never stopped making videos. And I'm sure those early videos are terrible. I think he would admit the same thing, <laughs> but he never stopped making videos. And yeah. when the culture changed, when he learned and when he grew and when he processed what he needed to do and when he studied and when he masterminded with his buddies about how to get good at this, it happened. So uh, there's, I, I just, it's something that's on my mind a lot because I think about my own kids and, and what their paths will be. And I just want them to know it is the dedication. It is the doggedness. It is the don't yes. give up if you love it. And uh, you didn't yep. give up because you loved it. And now, now you're doing it and been doing it for quite some time. So very, very cool. Uh, you know, because of what your conversation with, with Robert, and I know him, he's a nice fellow here in the Denver area. There is no path. I mean, he is right. In a way, you know, happenstance happened. You you helped make it happen, but also you got a break as well. I mean, it's sort of all these things confluence together. If if someone were just starting out, is it just the right, 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 and then maybe kind of ha things will happen? What 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 other tips would you give someone who's starting out right now in the culture? Well, you know, it, it, it changes so much the definition of what film criticism even is. I mean, when I was going to college in the 90s, when I started my gig writing for the paper, I was very enamored with this guy named James Berard Dinelli, who has a film site where he was basically just writing and cataloging for his website. Mm. And it caught a lot of attention. It certainly caught my attention because I'm thinking, this is a guy who's just writing. He's putting his reviews online, whether people read it or not. I'm like, I love this guy. This is what I do, except with, you know, pen and paper. So it's hard to say because... Obviously, with an internet presence, whether it's Instagram or, or you know, or, or Facebook or whatever it is, 
Um, I feel like there are different ways of getting noticed, different, different ways of getting seen. I mean, obviously I would tell my story because it worked for me, but I think one of the most important things is someone has to find their voice. And I know that's a weird kind of esoteric thing to say, but I mean, I think one of the most important things about being a film critic isn't simply just being able to rehash the plot and, you know, use the adjectives <laughs> and describe what is and what isn't good, but really find the love of writing, honestly. And again, I know that's kind of a, a touchy-feely thing to say, but if you love what you do, then you'll see a film, for example, like Big Mama's House 2, and you'll have the right <laughs> words to say, even though you don't want to write that article. Or you'll see a movie that'll blow you away, like in my case, The Tree of Life, and I'll have the right words to say because I love film criticism, but also because I know what my voice is. In a way, I know who my audience is, kind of, but you know, it's not simply just being able to do pen to paper or fingers to the keyboards. Mm. It's the ability to to really express your take, your voice, um, which is a harder thing to learn. But I think that's a very important thing to learn before you put yourself out there. I hate that advice because it's so correct and it's so hard to, <laughs> to tell someone because you want to give them a path and there really is no path. It yeah. is that voice. And I think the voice is the perfect word for it as frustrating as it is. And I yeah. think it's only, you only get it through the reps. You only get it because you keep writing and you keep trying and you keep kind of distilling yeah. what your, your voice is. And it, it does, it does appear after a while for better or worse. And, and hopefully, listen, if it doesn't appear, then I think you're anonymous in a way you, you want to have, have something special, something unique about you that no one else has. And I, I think if you're true to it and you're really hardworking, I think it does come out. But that's a, it, it's, we all want the template. We all want the blueprint, but it's not that way, especially with this kind of gig. Uh, someone recently asked me to give advice to a non-critic, just someone who watches movies, enjoys movies like everyone. But how do you start to discern it? How do you kind of share your thoughts, shape your thoughts? And my first advice was, don't overthink it because I think that would be dangerous because, you know, it, it's not rocket scientists. We're not splitting the atom. There is a craft to it for sure, and, and you get better at it. But w what advice would you give to someone who's maybe even just starting a blog or, or just wants to share their views even on just Facebook but do it in a way that's a little bit more grounded, a little bit more uh, meatier than usual? I say let the film happen. That's one of the most important things, which is a weird thing to say, but I think we sometimes go into a movie with preconceived notions or mm. we go in, you know, knowing some TMZ nonsense about a movie or a movie star. And I think the most important thing we could do is put all of that in the background is background noise and just watch the film, absorb it, let the experience happen. And if you don't like the film, be honest and don't try to apologize for your opinion. And if you hate the film, also you know, really double down on it and be honest why the film does not work. There are too many bad movies that succeed and there's too many good movies that are ignored. So I say, if, you know, when going into a film, I think one of the most important things to do is to have a clean palette. I never go, I've never in my life gone to a movie think I'm going to, I'm going to step on this movie. I'm going to really, mm -hmm. I'm going to just give it to Michael Bay as soon as this movie is over. No, <laughs> honestly, every single movie I ever see, I go uh -huh. in there thinking, I want to love this. And it's for the very, again, sorry, really, really touchy-feely, but, you know, I don't know how much longer I have to live, so I want this two hours to work. You know, I don't want to waste my time in the dark by myself for two hours. I want it to be a meaningful experience, and I want to run out of the theater going, I'm in love, I'm in love, and I'm going to tell everyone. For me, like, <laughs> loving a film is like that. Um, but also hating a film is like that too. So, you know, if you're going to have an opportunity to express how you feel about a movie, 
I feel one of the most important things you could do, first of all, is just let the film happen. And if you hate a film that everyone else loves, really think about why it doesn't work for you, why it rubbed you the wrong way. But also, if you love a film, uh, you know, if you genuinely love the movie that, that everyone is saying, like, it's, it's a stinker, be ready to defend your, your work. Um, because some movies, frankly, people aren't just ready for, and there are also movies that are sort of predetermined which are going to be successful and going to be hits, and those tend to not be the ones that always succeed. I am always a little bit perplexed when I really dislike a movie that's getting raves across the across the film critic landscape or just it's very yeah. popular. I, it, it does, I do double down and think, okay, what, what was my reasoning? Why did I think that way? Did I... Maybe did I approach it a different way? And I agree with your thinking. Even movies that I've heard bad things about, the buzz is awful. As soon as I plop down in that seat, I'm thinking, okay, it's 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 clean slate time. You know, bring it. What do you have for me? You know, because yes. at the end of the day, the buzz could be wrong, the news can be wrong, the actors yeah. who said something bizarre doesn't matter if the performances work. That's that, that's all that things. And, and I did one more thing. I think that is important is I try to greet the movies halfway. If it's a schlock, schlocky horror film, I'm not expecting award winning presentation. I'm not expecting great acting. I, I you know if it's a if it's a period film, which is one of my least favorite genres, I have to put that aside and say, is it entertaining? Does it work on its level? So I think that's I think that's important too because it it's almost like if you're grading an indie. On a uh, on a scale where it had a three hundred dollar three hundred million dollar budget, it's just not going to happen. Indie films don't have that; they have different resources, and it seems a little cruel to kind of, you know, say that the effects on this micro indie film are, are below par. Because yeah, of course they're below par; they can't help it. So, uh, right? Do you think that you've changed as a critic over the years? Do you, do you mean are you have more wisdom? Are you more impatient? And I'll I'll give my quick aside. I think when you see as many movies as we do. When something's a bit original, even if it isn't great, I, I do think we—I do think it sort of speaks to me a little bit more than usual, which is probably not fair, but it, it's also—I can't help it. But how do you think you've evolved over time? I hope I've evolved because I recently ran into a review I wrote in 1987 for Police Academy 4, uh, Citizens on Patrol, where I said it was the funniest film of 1987. So I really hope my opinion <laughs> has approved and my, my take on film. I, you know, honestly, it, it has and it hasn't because— I, I don't know. I, I, for the most part, it doesn't change. There are movies that I was just in the wrong frame of mind. I know we, we've had this conversation before. Ridley Scott's uh, Hannibal was one that I think I've changed the most about because I saw it when it came out in 2001. I was really put off by it. And I had read the book by Thomas Harris, so I knew what to expect. But because it was so stylistically different from Jonathan Demme's film, I really resisted it. I just thought, this is like the MTV version of Hannibal Lecter. I don't like this film. And then about a decade ago, I was teaching a class on uh, Ridley Scott in Colorado Springs, and I had to revisit Hannibal. Like I revisit all of his films and prepare for the class, and I found I really loved it. I really embraced it as a gothic love story. I embraced it as this really gauche and beautiful and disgusting art film. Uh, there's just a lot of things that I think a lot of us overlooked because at the time I wanted it to be what the 1991 film, The Silence of the Lambs, was, and this was a different thing. So. Yeah, that, that's and that's one of the few examples. I mean, for the most part, it's my, my opinion doesn't change that much. I mean, you know, good movies are always good, bad movies are always bad. I mean, there are those those films that, frankly, I mean, you just need kind of years to to realize like how good some of Kubrick's films are, for example. Um, but yeah, but with uh, with horror films, I mean, that's an interesting example because I mean, with horror films, sometimes it is what you're saying. Sometimes it is one of these things where a movie could be so scrappy 
and so undernourished in terms of the budget, but the imagination is rich enough and it sort of exceeds, succeeds rather, excuse me, in spite of itself. Mm. Um, I have a real soft spot for movies that reach for the sky and only get halfway there. I, movies like Southland Tales, for example, it's a hard film to defend as a great movie, but that film is really trying things that most mainstream movies would never try. And is, by the way, one of the last films that Dwayne Johnson ever did where he's actually not playing himself. So <laughs> I, I tend to be very soft-hearted about films that are really ambitious and they don't quite get there, as opposed to movies that just aren't even trying. Yeah, no, I, I agree. That's actually one of the reasons why I love the really bad films, because there's, there's something genuine and how awful they are they, it doesn't feel like they were cheating I think they just there was a lack of talent across the board and it shows yeah. so man magnificently and yet to me the the Sharknado films it's almost like hey look how bad we can do isn't this fun and I, I don't I don't find that as authentic and interesting it just I don't know, yes. it just seems a little like a little bit like a cheat like they're trying to go for the troll or the room without uh, without putting in the legwork yeah. are there films do you think out there that lend themselves to, to criticism where you could study this film and if you really drill down, you'll learn so much about film and craft and messaging and performances. And maybe just as just a, any particular great film will kind of wash over you in that way. But I just, as a film critic, are there some that really need to be seen because I think that it's almost like a building block for a critic? It's a great question. I mean, I always say for anyone who loves film and they really just want to dive into it, particularly my students who at the end of the semester, they're so jazzed, like, what's next? What's next? And, <laughs> and I say, you know, just see one of every film from every great filmmaker, you know, and I don't need a name, but you know who they, we're talking, you know, yeah. whatever, it's Bertolucci, Scorsese, Spike Lee, all the great filmmakers, see at least one of their films. And, you know, whatever, you might land on the wrong one. You might watch Topaz when you should be watching The Birds. But hey, like, watch at least one of every great great film from every great filmmaker and that will hopefully be the gateway to going oh man i really love godar or i yeah. you know i really love zeffirelli or i really love kurosawa because you get a sense of what this filmmaker is capable of so that's that's always my advice to anybody who really wants to just dig in deep with cinema is look at all of the masters all, all, all the filmmakers that everyone's talking about and in terms of the first part of your question i mean in terms of contemporary filmmakers who I say to look at all of the all of the guys right now who are just killing it whether it whether it's Christopher Nolan or David Fincher or Jordan Peele I mean guys who are making filmmakers and women too obviously filmmakers Catherine Bigelow is another favorite of mine filmmakers who just every time they make a movie there's something so distinct about it you I mean Get Out and Us are similar films for example and what I'm naming a filmmaker who only has two movies to his credit at this point but these are two highly accomplished works and they're exciting in the same way you know, when I saw uh, David Fincher do Alien 3 and then 7, I thought, this guy really has something going on. So with all of the modern contemporary filmmakers, I say, like, look at the works they've done that people have dismissed. Uh, two years ago, Christopher Nolan did Tenet, which, you know, one of these movies, unfortunately, that just got buried beneath the pandemic. And I know it's a divisive movie, and I know you didn't particularly care for it, and I, and I get that. And I like to review a lot. I, that was my favorite film of uh, 2020. And I just feel like that's one of those movies that because not only the way it's constructed from a narrative standpoint, but it's also from, from the technical standpoint and the production standpoint, I think there's a brilliance to that movie that I think will catch up with mm -hmm. probably in about a decade. But right now, I think it's, it's probably everyone's least favorite Nolan film. You, you bring up a good point. And one of the things that I love, the fact that you write a lot of reviews for Hollywood and Toto, my site, is when you as an adult start to reanalyze and reprocess films that you clearly saw as a younger man. 
it's yeah. that I mean it speaks to me so profoundly and it's it's so interesting that how you change over time impacts your the way you look at the film and how society has changed over time. Similarly, I mean, it's one of the greatest things about film right now for me. And and I'm also you, you have a child who's younger than mine, but you know you're, you're going to get there if you're not there already to a certain degree. Watching my kids see these films is so fascinating, and I I see them with another set of lens, you know, another sort of perspectives. Me through his eyes, uh, me as a father. Uh, what kind of lessons are in there? What did I think of it when I was his age? I just, you know, if there's any reason not to love film or to reappreciate how much you love film. That's it. Um, are there any kind of fast rules as far as don't do that as a critic? And I think we we kind of hinted at a couple here, but sort of maybe just never do this or just this is the wrong way to approach a movie. I'd say don't over explain the plot. I'm still scarred from 1983 when Rex Reed decided to spill the entire ending of Return of the Jedi. I was really (laughs) glad that I saw the film before I heard his assessment, but uh, Rex Reed hated the film and he famously said, you know, if you thought it was ridiculous that Luke Skywalker is related to Darth Vader, well get this. He just like went into all the things. He just hated that film and he gleefully spoiled it. So to say the least, obviously, um, not only am I not really that good at giving a synopsis because you know I, I'm not a novelist, I'm a film critic, but it's also because I want the audience to, to really discover the film. So I tend to be very scant in my plot description as little as possible. I would rather a trailer spoil a movie than, than I spoil a film for anyone. So I'd advise that. Barry, one last question. Anything looking ahead to 2022? I know we're a couple months in. It still feels like a fresh year. Either predictions, do you think that the theatrical window will stay as is or even shrink? Will box office rebound for the summer? Any films that might surprise us? I know you mentioned, you've mentioned Jordan Peele a couple times. I feel the exact same way. When I saw the first five minutes of Get Out, I thought, oh my gosh, this is really good. This, I, I feel yeah. very comfortable, like I'm in good hands. And I think that's a really impressive thing to say about a filmmaker. And I... I, you know, I was thinking Jordan Peele's a funny guy. What's he doing making a horror movie? And then, oh, yeah, okay. Uh, but just looking ahead, any any quick thoughts about what may surprise us, what the, the weird in film may still have, you know, <laughs> to surprise us with? What, what, any thoughts like that? Well, Scorsese has a new film coming out, and it's about Native Americans and the way they've been abused by the, the, the FBI. It's with Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro. I'm very interested in that, though. I think it's going to premiere on Apple TV, so it's oh, one gosh. of those interesting examples of it's a movie that may not even have a theatrical appearance. So that's one of the big question marks, because there's a bunch of films I'm looking forward to, and I wonder how many of them I'm even going to have the opportunity to see on the big screen. And it's tricky, of course, because because I, I really want to go out of my way to see a movie on the big screen. I have a friend who actually took a plane to watch the Batman on IMAX. He wanted that experience <laughs> so badly. So he, t- he actually flew to see the movie and he had a blissful experience in doing so. And I get it um, because I, I want that every single time. And sometimes you're really short, short selling yourself when you're looking at something on your little monitor at home. All that to say, uh, the movie I'm looking forward to the most is because he's my favorite filmmaker, Terrence Malick. He has a film coming out called The Way of the Wind. It's rumored to be appearing this year, although with Malick, you never know. You never know. Um, his films have a tendency to slide all over the, the calendar. <laughs> and, it, you know, and this guy takes a long time to, to – his post-production periods are famously years long. But the film is about the life of Christ. It's something I feel like he's been kind of inching towards his whole career. 
Mark, Mark Rylance is in it, but otherwise it's a basically an unknown cast, but he's one of our great cinematic poets. So I'm really looking forward to that one. But uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of great filmmakers, a lot of masters, like, like for example, Steven Spielberg, who are still making films that have new films. So I, I tend to look at them first. I tend to look at the grandfathers of cinema, what they're doing. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's always, my, my love for cinema is pretty, pretty deep. It, there always tends to be these surprises that, that sprout up every year. Okay. Th- I didn't want to end, I wanted to end, but I have one last question because I think it's important. Does it rankle you that the Scorseses of the world are working with Netflix and Apple TV when you know that the vast, vast majority of people will see their films on their TV sets, whereas they, in theory, you would, if, if you're kind of old school, you'd think, well, these are the filmmakers that who should be championing the theatrical experience. They should be sort of the last holdouts. Any, any quick thoughts about that? That's a great question. My, I think the easy answer for me is Watchmen. Zack Snyder did a two and a half hour version of Watchmen. Um, I think it was 2009 when that came out. And it was still not long enough for him. It still wasn't big enough for him. He had to release extended cuts subsequently. On the other hand, HBO did a Watchmen miniseries a couple of years back. Don Johnson was one of the names and Regina King was in it. Um, not only was it brilliant, one of my favorite things that I'd seen recently, but it was basically a 14-hour movie, a perfect, brilliant, layered, nuanced 14-hour movie. So I get it when these great filmmakers want to use a streaming service as their way of connecting to the audience because they've got final cuts. They don't have to worry about how long their film is. They're able to tell long-storm, excuse mm-hmm. me, long-form storytelling. I get it, and I applaud them for wanting to do that. I think that we'll, we'll figure this out, whatever the you know whatever the ultimate compromise is, because it is a compromise when you do a film on such an epic scale and you're watching it at home on your laptop or a TV that just doesn't do justice to what the experience is supposed to be. But there are films, obviously, that are made for the home experience that are comfortable to watch at home. Um, I really like this new Adrian Lyon film, for example, which is a good trashy fun and it's on Hulu. And you know what, you know, Ben Affleck is the star of it. And it's a big screen film and it was done by Fox. And, uh, you know, seeing it at home is fine. You don't need to see it on the big screen. On the other hand, anytime Scorsese does a film, he tends to always paint with a very big canvas. Same, same with Steven Spielberg. So I feel like there has to be a way to see these films on the big screen the way they should be. But it's nice to have that option because not everything is meant to be seen, you know, in a theater. Yeah. By the way, that movie was Deep Water. I just watched it recently with my wife. I enjoyed it quite a bit. I thought the ending had some silly, I was giggling a bit moments, but otherwise very entertaining. And I think that Ben Affleck is actually getting to be a better actor. I thought he's been very stiff earlier in his career, but I think he's kind of getting getting more comfortable, getting more interesting. And I think some of actors as they age, I've seen Kevin Costner, maybe even uh, Pierce Brosnan, I think they've gotten more mature and not just in age but just in, in the way they approach a role so that's it's been fun to watch but uh, Barry I love talking movies with you I could do it forever but we will get you back on the show very very soon and tell people where the, else they can find all of your work besides Hollywood and Toto because you are a busy man well thank you I love writing for Hollywood and Toto.com that's where a lot of my work is I also write for ScreenGeeks.com. Uh, you can find my reviews in Rotten Tomatoes. And I have a podcast, so I married a film critic, uh, which is on Apple and Spotify, which I do with my wife, and we have a lot of fun doing that. Excellent. It's a great show. I love that. And uh, get a new, get a different side of Barry. I kind of know you in a certain way, and now I have a, a, a broader understanding of how you approach films. And I love the, the interchange there because I know my wife and I have interesting conversations about movies, and that's part of the reason why I love films is chatting about them afterwards. So Barry, thanks so much. And we will talk to you very soon. Thank you, Christian. Always a pleasure.
Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Thank you, as always, for listening to Ride on Hollywood. We're part of the Just the News podcasting family. Now, I'd love it if you give the show a five-star rating over at iTunes, or just tell a friend to pick up my new book, Virtue Bombs, How Hollywood Got Woke and Lost Its Soul. Or, those two things are out of the question, maybe just share this episode on social media. I'm not picky. You know, we don't have a huge budget here. There's not oodles of cash being thrown around. But it's just you, and it's me, and that word-of-mouth thing, which has worked so well for so long, even in the digital age. Pretty glad that'll never go out of style. Now, if you need me, I'll be in my movie room hunkering down and dreading the moment that the Oscar ceremony begins. Wish me luck. Thanks for listening to the Right on Hollywood podcast, part of the Just the News Network. We'd love to hear from you about the show. You can email Christian at Hollywoodintoto.com. And please don't forget to rate and review us at Apple Podcasts. Five-star reviews make our day. But just speak from the heart. Free speech matters more than ever. Thank you.